Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really great to have you here. On this week's episode, it's a Christmas Day miracle. Well, not really, but it's a lovely collaboration with my friends at the Pops on Hops podcast. So here's an episode of theirs with me as a guest talking about my Harbor Code LP, Joy is Elusive, and enjoying some of my beloved Bell's Brewing beers from beautiful Michigan. Let's get into it. Christmas, y'all. It's Maddie C. Uh, I don't know how you celebrate or what you celebrate or what holiday you uh, you are enjoying or dreading or uh, working through. I don't know. I don't know what your holiday situation is like. It's different for all of us. It changes. It shifts. It shapes. Um, I hope it's good. I hope you are around people that you care about and that care about you and that understand you. And I hope you're having a good day and a good and a good week. Um, we're going to do something a little different today. Instead of having a conventional guest, I I wanted to do something different for Christmas. And my friend Barry Hummel from the Pops on Hops podcast, and who I know from our mutual friend Pete Dominic over at Stand Up with Pete Dominic, a wonderful daily podcast you should be subscribed to. Um, Barry reached out to me and said that during their hiatus, they have an off-season where basically in January and February, uh, this particular podcast does not does not does not publish new episodes, and so they they take a couple months off. and And Barry got a hold of me and said, "Hey, when Abigail and I were on your podcast, um, it was great. And could we air that episode as sort of some bonus content while we're in hiatus?" And I said, "Sure, of course, that would be really lovely." And so I immediately thought. Well, couldn't I use the one when I was on Pops on Hops? And then I thought, that might be a really great thing for Christmas Day. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to do a little intro. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's going on in my world like I usually do. Do my best to update the blog. And then um, I'm going to go ahead and, and jump into just a full episode with me and Barry and Abigail Hummel from Pops on Hops. And I really hope you enjoy it. It was so much fun to record that with them. Um, I hope you're well. I, I really, I hope you're well. Like I said, I know the holidays can be a tough time. Um, I am recording this, uh, officially nine days before Christmas itself. Cause I have a lot to do the week of Christmas and I want to make sure that I have this lovely pod ready to go. And so this isn't necessarily going to be super related to the blog specifically. I'm going to hit a few things. Uh, that I kind of have ready to go that I know will publish uh, by the 25th. You don't know, need to know all this. Why am I telling you this? You don't need to know how the sausage is made. You don't give a shit. Uh, Jaws is our winner. Jaws has won. Jaws is, according to the What Am I Making, a uh, very small sample size, uh, Jaws is the greatest film in the canon of Steven Spielberg. Did you vote? Do you have thoughts? Would you like to have seen something else win? Did it make you want to rewatch any of these Spielberg films? Are any are any of these films that you think either severely 
under or overrated. I know we had some really interesting discussion from a couple of folks who don't feel an emotional connection to E.T. And I know for some of you, E.T. is the film to which you have the most emotional connection for a Spielberg film. And I, I really would love it if you guys would jump on um, the, uh, the post where you were allowed to vote for either Jaws or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Go back and find that and let me know. Uh, I'm going to be posting a uh, sort of a sum up piece about this whole process and kind of what I thought and what I saw and what it made me think about this man's work and what it means to American movies and cinema and American culture in general. So this has been a really interesting experience for me. Do you want to do another one of these? I know I asked this on another show recently, but do you do you want to do some more stuff like this? Do you want to do like best films of a decade or uh, best Hitchcock film or best... Um, slapstick comedy or anything like that I don't know did you it seemed like people really enjoyed the idea of having the opportunity to vote and kind of chime in on the idea of culture I always get a little nervous about pitting one cultural work up against another but obviously it's an exercise it's a way for us to have an excuse to discuss these films um so I'd really love to know what what you think um i'm going to mention this a couple of times but the best ways to reach out are to hit us via email it's what am i making blog at gmail.com or you can send us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash what am i making all you got to do is just go over there and you can use the micro uh, the microwave the microphone (laughs) on your uh on your tablet your computer or your mobile device and um and you can just send me a little voicemail and uh, i might even get to play it on the show Um, are you listening to the radio shows? I've been having so much goddamn fun doing these. It's really been a treat. Some of these have been even challenging myself. I, I I did one, um, where I I really got going and I was like, this is going to be easy. I'm going to have so much, so much stuff left over. And then I really struggled to kind of find ways to really string it together. And I, Again, I'm telling you how the sausage is made. But the point is, doing these radio shows where I have a themed hour every week, which, again, they broadcast live at noon Eastern every Friday at suburbsradio.com. Or you can always go back and check the blog at whatamimaking.substack.com. And each week there will be a replay with a link so that you can go over to Mixcloud and you can listen to the archived episode over there whenever you have time. Uh, Make sure that you're getting involved. Each week before I broadcast the show on Friday, I ask people, hey, what's your favorite song about winter? Or what's your favorite tune by a Canadian band? Or what's your favorite song from Scotland? That kind of stuff. So make sure that as I ask those kinds of questions, you're chiming in on those. Those have become super, super active conversations with lots and lots of people chiming in and lots and lots of of banter back and forth. Please keep that up. The more we can all communicate with each other, the more we're really creating a community. And I got to say, while social media is a bit of a cesspool, um, I have really enjoyed my time over at Substack so far. And if you're thinking about finding a new place to kind of hang out, you don't have to be a creator or a writer. You can get on there, make a profile. You can follow writers and and publishers that you like. Uh, Substack. I, I sound like I'm I'm broadcasting for Substack. I'm not. They're they're doing some stuff to kind of uh, upgrade their video and audio uploads, so it's it's getting better in that regard. And uh, their social uh, platform called Notes is also pretty cool. And I've met some really wonderful people. So. Uh, 
I hope it continues to to go in this direction. It's been really, really good. But again, get involved by submitting your songs when I ask for the theme each week. Oftentimes, I've pre-recorded the show, so I can't necessarily add what what you're putting in there. Um, but it's just so much fun to have these conversations. And then you can take a look at what I wound up putting on the show a few days later. I will publish that archived episode that I talked about with a track list and everything. And you can see if I included your stuff. And uh, it's really it's really fun, and, and it's been a really... I've, I'm just loving it. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I wish I had started it sooner. It's been really, really good. Uh, did you guys know I'm going on tour in June? Uh, the Shedio hits the road. I need hosts. I put a thing up just a few days ago, and I will continue to broadcast that. But you can go over to phonaforrecords.com slash Matthew Carlson if you're interested in hosting a show. I have four weeks of dates that I'm looking to fill from uh, the, I believe it's the 6th of June through the 30th, and I've got about 40% maybe confirmed, and I've I've got a bunch that I still need hosts for, so go over there and take a look. I will be going all over the eastern U.S. If you're interested in hosting a show, reach out. Find me on social media. Send me an email at whatamimakingblog at gmail.com. Or uh, leave me a message at speakpipe.com slash what am I making? I would love to come to your town and play a show. It's really quite easy. You don't need a lot of room. It won't cost you any money. There's a way to do this and have an absolute blast and share live music with friends in a really intimate environment. And I would love to do that at your place. Um, I also want to make sure you guys are all aware of the postcard program that helps to support my tour. This is a really neat thing where you throw me a couple bucks and then I will send you a postcard from out on the road to update you how it's going. I will stop in, say, Georgia at a Bucky's or something and I'll buy a really kitschy, fun postcard and I'll send it to your house with a little note and it'll brighten your mailbox and you can give me a few gallons of gas or help me buy a sandwich. And um, every little bit helps. So go on over to phonoforrecords.com slash postcards and you can learn more and even place your order today. Um, also want to make sure you are keeping up with our series, uh, 13 Films to Get to Know Me. I published this uh, several weeks ago, and my mom was quite taken with it and then did her own list, and then that became the theme for our family movie club, which I know I have talked to you guys about before, but uh, basically there are five of us involved, and we pick a, a theme or a topic, and then we each pick a film from that topic, we all screen it, and then we talk about it, and so uh, over the course of about 10 weeks, we meet roughly every other Sunday. And over the course of about 10 weeks, we watch five different films and we talk about them and on the top and then we change the genre or the topic or the theme. And this 13 films to get to know me became not only the theme of our current movie club, um, it's also been a really neat exercise for the people who participate in movie club so that we can learn a little bit about each other and ourselves as viewers. And um, that's absolutely what I wanted it to be. And I want to know if you want to participate in this because I want to publish this for people. I want to help people put their list together and help them write a paragraph or two about each film and why it matters to them and why it shaped them as a cinema goer. So do you want to put together a list of 13 films? I want to hear from you. I'm genuinely interested. I really think this is an interesting exercise and a great look in the way that people are shaped by culture. So so let's work together. Help, Help me help you. Let's, let's put together your list of 13 films. 
I want to know about your life as a moviegoer. Hit me with an email. What am I making? Blog at gmail.com or reach out on the SpeakPipe at speakpipe.com slash what am I making? Um, have you guys been reading the Rideshare Files? Uh, I, oh my God, I published an article. Uh, wow, it's been not quite two weeks, but it was about a pickup that involved a wait that lasted nearly a half an hour. And then when I brought the dude back to his house, the cops were waiting for him. Um, I'll let you read about all the details, but make sure you're paying attention to this because my quote-unquote day job leads to some real interesting stories and experiences, and I'm pretty—I'm having a pretty good time writing about them here, and I hope you're having a pretty good time reading about them. Um, the last thing I want to say before I jump into introducing my quote-unquote guests, which basically are the hosts this week, um, but the last thing I want to say is that I have a favor to ask. We have a push going on right now. I'm trying to hit two pretty meaningful goals that would that would be pretty pretty awesome to hit by the end of 2023. And here's the deal. I'm trying to get to 500 free subscribers and 50 paid subscribers. As I record this on the morning of Saturday, December 16th, because again, I'm trying to get this done early so that I can have some some time to get some shit done over Christmas. We currently sit with 43 paid subscribers and 457 free subscribers. So that means I need seven paid and 43 free. Will you be one of those people? If you've been listening to this and you've been thinking, man, I keep meaning to sign up for a for a monthly subscription for Maddie or or just I'll just I'll just I'll give him sixty bucks. I'll do the yearly thing. I just I mean I keep meaning to do that. If you keep meaning to do it and you haven't done it, it's okay. If you could do it before December thirty first, that'd be amazing. I I would love to be in a position to say that I got to five hundred free subscribers and fifty paid subscribers in less than a year. That would be an incredible accomplishment. And it would be a really nice push to begin twenty twenty four. If you're already a paid subscriber and maybe you have a couple of extra bucks, would you consider buying a gift subscription for someone else in your life? A way to support the show and also share this with another person. If you already are a paid subscriber or are not in a position to be a paid subscriber, would you be willing to share this as a free subscriber with other folks who maybe don't know about it, put it on your social media, text it to a friend or two, send out an email, mention it to somebody at lunch or a Christmas party. Talk to some folks about it when you have your holiday gathering and see if you can find two or three like-minded people who might be interested in what I'm doing here and ask them to sign up for a free subscription. There's no risk. I'm not going to sell their data. I'm not, I'm not some big corporate uh, data mining overlord that's going to take all of their information. I don't even know how to do that shit. All I want to do is talk to people who want to talk about cool stuff. So if you know people who have an interest in cool stuff, like the cool stuff we talk about here, send them my way. Last thing I'll ask is a like, rate, and review the pod wherever you're listening. You're in there right now. If you haven't done it, take 30 seconds and go do that, please. It makes a huge difference. It helps get our podcast in front of new ears. So, Let's get into the show. To say that my friends Barry and Abigail Hummel have been supportive is an understatement. 
They have been fans and champions of my work since I first met them in the early days of the lockdown life. Barry became an early paid subscriber here at What Am I Making long before I had done anything to earn that support. Barry and Abigail also welcomed me on their podcast to discuss my new Harbor Code album and to sample some of my favorite Michigan beers with them. What had already been a nice virtual acquaintance had now blossomed into a genuine, real-life friendship with these people. On my tour last summer, Abigail arranged for me to play at a gorgeous farm just outside of Gainesville, Florida. We had a lovely evening in the Florida rain with a few cattle and a few friends. This coming June, I will be playing in Gainesville once again with the Hummels playing host. Recently, Barry reached out and said he wanted to air my podcast with the Pops on Hops gang during their off-season. I was so humbled, I thought it would be a great idea to share our pods with each other's audiences. So Barry was kind enough to let me share my appearance on Pops on Hops here with you at What Am I Making? It's a really great discussion with a trio of folks who are music nerds, beer lovers, and just thrilled to be talking about what's really important in life with each other. Barry and Abigail also dig deep on the stories behind the Harbor Coat LP, an album of which I am still very damned proud. Please be sure to check out all of the other Pops on Hops episodes and subscribe to it wherever you listen. I hope you enjoy this Christmas edition of the pod, my friends. Happy holidays wherever you are and however you celebrate. I love you. All the best wishes. Cheers. Maddie C. listening to the pops on hops podcast where we listen to some pops drink a little hops and i get to hang out with my pop i'm abigail hummel and i'm barry hummel and welcome to another special bonus episode we've had a wealth of friends of the podcast who are musicians and today i'm delighted to introduce another friend of the podcast matt carlson currently in two bands the sticker rounds and harbor coat and matt and i met in a very weird way we'll probably share that here in a few minutes but matt (laughs) welcome to pops on hops welcome thank you so much it's great to be here thanks for having me been a fantastic uh, getting to know you i I guess i'll share this story right up front so matt and i are both fans of a stand-up comic pete dominic who has a daily podcast public affairs podcast and uh we're patreon subscribers which gives us the ability to hang out on thursday nights with pete and just have kind of a freeform happy hour. And over time, Matt's popped up in there and it came to my attention that Matt had released this album. Pete was talking about it. I'm like, I didn't know you were a musician. And so I reached out to him and got a little bit of information about it and uh, ordered an album. And Matt sent me like practically a box set. I mean, he was so mm-hmm. kind <laughs> to send me several albums from several different bands. So I, I hope we get to discuss all the different bands before we get into the album. But it was through Pete Dominic that Matt and I met. And so we're virtual friends. This is all a pandemic virtual relationship at this point. I've not been able to see any of these bands play yet, but now that the world's opening up, I hope we can make that happen sometime. And so uh, that's how we met. Yeah. And um, it is weird how the world gets smaller as it also gets more locked down. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of great because you reached out to me, I think largely because of the name of my most recent project. Because it's an REM reference. Yeah, well, I can definitely tell you that that piqued my curiosity when I saw the name of the band. 
So part of me had to know what that was about. You know, that was part of the interest in it for sure. But again, that's not the only reason because I have a lot of friends who've been in the music industry for a long time and I love collecting. I have, I'm one of these guys who, if I see a guy playing guitar in a bar in Marathon, Florida, I will buy that disc. Oh, bless you, Barry. I do it all the time. You know, I buy, and they're the coolest albums and the most, some of the most fun stuff I have. I don't want to say it's an obscure collection. Some of that's obscure, right? It's people in bars. Some of it is great music that doesn't reach as many people as it deserves to reach. Sure. And I love collecting that stuff. I love having that stuff. I have an enormous music collection because of that. And it's always great fun to meet people who make their own music who write their own music and perform their own music. And in your case, produce your own music. And I just love that. So I guess my first question, Matt, is how did you get interested in music? How were you little? Did it come later in life? I don't remember a time when I wasn't completely and totally drawn to it. Even as a kid, my mom was kind of the bus driver. Unlike your relationship, my mom was kind of the bus driver for music in the house. My dad enjoyed it, but my dad didn't seek it out. And like, it was just kind of a thing that was like, you know, we'd be in the car and there'd be something on the radio and he would say, oh, I like that song or whatever. But he never got excited, never had a big record collection. Hmm. So the first set of records I remember really listening to that were my mom's were like Cat Stevens, Donovan, Bob Dylan. My parents have a great story about their first date. Uh, they went to go see Sam and Garfunkel at Cobo Hall in Detroit in um, 1969. And it was, they basically played most of the Bridge Over Troubled Water record before the record came out. Oh, wow. And it was just the two of them with a guitar and two stools and those two voices. And like, I think for them, I think it was like, it was never going to get any better than that. So I grew up listening to a ton of that Greenwich Village, British folk stuff. Um, Mm. And then of course, like, you know, every kid in middle America in the late seventies and early eighties, you know, the Beatles are everywhere. The Beach Boys are everywhere. And so I, I really loved that stuff. I grew up in a time when we were just starting to get what at the time, what they called oldies radio, which was all like the early rock and roll stuff. So like you might hear Buddy Holly and then you might hear Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini and then you hear like (laughs) Jumpin' Jack Flash or something. And so I got a lot of mileage out of that in elementary school and really liked a lot of that stuff. And then by the time I got to like late elementary and middle school, I was kind of starting to discover what was still popular stuff, but wasn't necessarily stuff that my parents liked. So for example, I can remember the first thing, the first record I ever bought with my own money was Seven and the Ragged Tiger by Duran Duran. Oh, wow. Um, You know, but I was also really into like the cars. And I remember really liking Cheap Trick as a kid, which I still do. You know, and then a lot of like top 40 stuff, you know, Thriller and Purple Rain and those first couple Madonna records were kind of everywhere. So, and then I kind of reached the point in mid high school where I really got entrenched in like the whole college rock world. And that's really where things kind of took root for me. So, you know, obviously REM, but the Smiths and Depeche Mode, Echo and the Bunnymen, the Pixies, Sisters of Mercy, New Order, Joy Division, you know, for me, it was all about songs. It was all about, like, it didn't matter what you looked like. It didn't matter whether it was a synth band or a goth band or a hard rock band or if it was like a jangle pop band. If the songs were good, I was into it. At what point did you start to play an instrument? I started kind of late. I had some fits and starts with a guitar, but it, I didn't really kind of hack it out to get to the point where I was semi-proficient until I was in my late teens and early 20s. Oh, wow. wow. That would have been early 90s. So 91, 92 is really 
kind of when I sort of started really being serious about it. And I was to the point where I was kind of comfortable. And most of the way I learned was with this book called Beatles for Easy Guitar. Oh, wow. And it was every song in the catalog. And what they did was it was literally like, okay, here's how you can approximate what these songs sound like with major and minor chords only. So there were no weird augmentations. There were no passing chords. There was nothing super complicated. It was, you can play this and sing the melody line that everyone in the world already knows to this song. And it's going to give you an idea of how you can play this fairly easily if you practice. Like literally, that was how I learned how to play. It had the little finger charts for the chords. And then you just kind of chuck through it. And what I would do is I would sit down and I would play one or two songs a day and I would get proficient at those. And then I would move on to others. And I probably learned how to play half that catalog that way. How about that? I mean, I don't remember any of it. It's been 30 years. <laughs> right, right, right. Wow. But it was a wonderful tool because it took this thing that you already knew and it said, okay, you don't have to sit here and play Kumbaya or, you know, even something like Times Are Changing. You know, it was, you can play this whole catalog of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you know, then once you start playing with other people, they'll show you a trick or they'll show you a, a little lick or a different way to shape a chord. And then it just kind of takes off from there. So really never any formal lessons, sort of just learning it on the fly. Yeah. And my motivation was I didn't want to be like a hotshot lead player. I wanted to be able to write songs. I didn't want to be Jimi Hendrix. I wanted to be Johnny Marr, but I also learned very quickly that I was not going to be able to do that. So to me, it was much more interesting to write songs. So growing up on that sort of steady diet of folk music. And the other thing I heard a lot in the house as a kid was I heard a lot of classic country. And so it was like, okay, what kind of story can I tell in two and a half minutes? And then kind of the double whammy for me of sort of realizing that I could do this was a guy named Billy Bragg. Are you familiar with him, Abigail? I'm not. Barry, are you? A little bit, not a ton. Okay. So Billy Bragg is a guy who started making records in the early 80s. And he is sort of this weird combination of being a member of that first punk generation. So he was coming of age, basically when the clash and the sex pistols were happening in London. And he is also a really politically active guy. He was really kind of radicalized, I guess, by the... uh, minor strike in England in the early 80s in 83 or 84. So when he first started, it was totally him solo. And he used to refer to himself as a one-man clash. Hmm. So basically he was a folk singer sort of in the punk mold. And it's just these wow. songs. That, and it's just, I just, so like the song that I heard, it was called The Saturday Boy. And it's all about this kid who has a crush on this girl in class. And she just completely disses him. You find out that like, she she's just being nice to him and flirting with him because she wants to know the right answers. And then like he goes by her house and there's other dudes there. And it's this lovely little tale of like that first naivete of romantic experience and realizing like, yeah, the older dudes are going to make it tough for you to make that <laughs> make that happen. I heard that and I was like, this is amazing. And then all of a sudden it was like, here's this song about being 21 years old in England. And the, one of the lines that kills me is the factories are closing, the army's full. And he talked a lot about lack of opportunity and he was really adamant about like socialism and just all kinds of progressive ideas. And I just fell in love. I fell in love musically. I fell in love with the idea of being able to do it myself. And I fell in love with the politics of it. And the whole thing was a really, really big experience for me. Now, if you were going to suggest a Billy Bragg, so we have this thing called the virtual jukebox, Matt, and I'm happy to add an album in your name on it. If you were going to suggest one Billy Bragg album, what would that be? My advice is always start at the beginning. So I think the, the first U.S. release he had was a record called Back to Basics, which is actually a compilation of his first EP and his first full length LP, which are all just him. 
And while I think that some of the stuff where he gets a band and he does more produced stuff is really lovely, I kind of think that's a great place to start. Awesome. I will add that to the jukebox. And then if I draw it out randomly, you're going to have to come back for another episode. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a real chore. He sounds right up our alley, though. I knew the story about his political activism and the minor strike. That's the part of that I remembered. I, I can't tell you that I've listened to much of his music over the years or heard very much. The two big hits that I think most people are familiar with if they're if they've heard his work are uh one is an early song called a new england which was also covered later by kirsty mccall and the second one is actually a song he co-wrote with johnny marr called sexuality and that one got a lot of college radio play and was on barry you probably remember 120 minutes on mtv yes and, i remember uh, mtv also <laughs> yeah yeah and when, when they used play, to play music it's funny how many of the albums that i when i go back and realize why i got them in the first place was because I fell in love with a video on MTV, which drew me to a single, which made me buy an album. And uh, in retrospect, that really worked as a marketing tool. Like at the time, I didn't really understand that strategy so much. But boy, oh boy, did I buy a lot of music because of videos on MTV. Uh, Yeah, and I I find it really fascinating because... So much of that early stuff that we sort of codify as being a big part of the 80s and the way the 80s sound. Like if somebody says you're going to have an 80s night, you're going to play Duran Duran, you're going to play Modern English, you're going to play Culture Club, Culture Club and Wham and, you know, New Order and probably the Cars and stuff like that. And it's funny because basically like Def Leppard and Journey and, you know, all those bands that were just a little bit from the generation before Jethro Tull, they were going, we're not making videos. It's dumb. Yeah. And so like the first four years of MTV, most of that stuff is coming in from overseas because they're buying into the idea of that delivery system. Hmm. Yeah. And some of those bands regretted it and actually came around and do like Journey really had a late yeah. career push because of a couple of big music videos on MTV. Well, look how big Aerosmith get when they release those three singles or whatever. What I can't ever remember the name of that record with Janie's crying on it, but and ZZ Top, same thing. Yes. Those are lesser records in those bands canon, but they got really big because they finally bought into the MTV idea. Yeah, the Aerosmith basically had a comeback. They yeah, called it a comeback much. in 1985, 10 years after. Right, 10 years after Toys in the Attic. Only yeah. 10 years, right? We, we laugh about it. Remember when Elton <laughs> John had a big comeback with Too Low for Zero after being missing in action for all of five years, and here's his big <laughs> comeback album. And, right, and now, and now there are lots of bands that have six years between records. Yeah, U2 does it all the time, right? They'll go four yeah, or five years yeah. between albums. Well, I mean, it's not like U2 is really going, you know, how are we going to kick up the revenue, fellas? I don't <laughs> feel like Larry Mullen Jr. sitting around looking at his uh, bank balance and going, you know, getting a hold of the edge and going, we really need to put some product out. My mortgage is coming. But I would say their longevity is as a result of the fact that they don't have that kind of pressure. They're able to come back. Like they probably separate themselves for four years and then they get together and work a year. Imagine what the Beatles lives would have been like if they weren't, I'm not saying they were forced, but they were on a pressure cooker to get two albums out a year for eight years. No wonder they were burned out and broke up. Right? I I mean, how could you, how could you do that? They had what, 14 albums, let's say in their catalog and U2's had 15. U2's been right. in it for 40 years and the Beatles did it for eight. But back then you couldn't, you couldn't get away with that. To have Elton John take a five-year break was like he fell off the planet. And it's so silly no. to me in retrospect. Well, I mean, and there's the whole like, you know, the Dylan motorcycle accident. He goes away for 18 months. and It's like he disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah, right. <laughs> Dude took a sabbatical. Yeah. Billy Joel hasn't written a, an album since 1993 and he's not hurting. Right. So they, they, no. don't, they don't need that pressure to crank that stuff out. And when you're a legacy artist like that, all you have to do is just go, hey, 
we're doing shows in 22 cities mm-hmm. and you can make an immense amount of money. And I don't, yeah. I don't begrudge them that. If people want to go see Billy Joel for the 12th time, who am I to stop them? Yeah. It's still fun to go. So, and, um, yeah. and I think so many of those artists were relying on kind of the royalties from the writing and things like that. And some of that's not happening anymore. You hear a guy like David Crosby, he, if he doesn't play live, he's, you know, he's not in great shape financially, which is right. weird to me because of when they had all their hits, they weren't in the best contracts as the writers of those songs, or they don't own the catalog. Just the publishing and placement rights on just like Two of the CSNY records seems like you could make a very nice living off of that. Like how many TV shows and movies does our house have to be in before right. you can really get by? That's not the music industry anymore. It, it's really about live performances, I feel like. that. Uh... Not to side plug, but like I, I mentioned when we started talking that I have this new podcast project that I'm working on. And it's largely based around what is the state of the music industry in the early 21st century? Oh, cool. What is that like? And specifically, what is it like for people who aren't doing it at the highest runs? I'm sure things are still real good if you're Taylor Swift. Yeah. You know, they're great. I, again, don't begrudge her. She has an immense amount of talent and I absolutely applaud the way she has handled the re-recording of her own records. I think that whole story is really fascinating. I agree. So there was a, I'll send it to you guys when we're done. There was a great op-ed piece that was in the USA Today a few days ago. And it was this guy who has been in the punk scene for 35 years. And the essence of this article is Taylor Swift re-recording Red and owning the rights to it is the most punk thing I've ever seen anybody do. It's so great. It's so cool. Yeah. And again, she's not for me, but anytime I hear one of those songs, I can't help but appreciate the amount of talent that's involved. So like people like her and Beyonce and Jay-Z are probably comfortable. Sure. But we are talking about a tiny little fraction of this whole community of people. And all they want to do is make a living or in some cases make a part of a living. Right. And I just feel like there is this really weird dichotomy. It's never been easier for a 16-year-old kid to make a record on a laptop in his bedroom and get it out to the world. Mm -hmm. But if it's brilliant, it's going to be almost impossible for him to get paid for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You put up a thing, your Spotify account the other day, I think it was the Harbor Coast statistics on your Facebook page and made that same comment. You had quite a few plays on Spotify and that certainly doesn't translate into you guys getting paid for your work. I was just going to say the generation that buys music is not really tuned in to music that is currently being released. So even if it's new music that is geared toward an older generation who would otherwise probably buy that music, it's difficult for those folks to hear new stuff that's coming out unless they have Sirius XM, like my dad. Or Pops on Hops, right? <laughs> or Pops on Hops. <laughs> no, Abigail, that's a fantastic point. So the question is, and I just recorded an interview on Friday with a, a friend who's been in bands for 35 years. And he and I were talking about this because he was in a couple of bands that were really close to like making it in the mid 90s. And this was all like 96, 97, and 98. And so it's at that time where like you can sort of see the cracks forming in that business model. But you can also see that really the only way that people are getting music right now is to to buy a physical copy, most specifically a CD. And so as we have shifted to this new model, and I have this conversation with my drummer all the time. And his thing is like, I just want people to hear our stuff. So do I. But even doing it at the level that we're doing it, it costs money. We're virtually producing everything we do ourselves in the two bands that I'm in. But I have a few thousand dollars worth of gear. I have a shed that doubles as a studio. I have costs to promote and mix and master and then produce physical copies. And 
you know, and then the whole vinyl world is a new mess. So just to peel back another layer, Matt's from Michigan. He, he mentioned Detroit earlier, but he's, I think it's, you're a little bit east of Lansing, I think, right? In, just, um, just west, yeah. I mean, basically, west, I'm, I'm sorry, west. I live I live in a verb that is directly west of the city. Okay. And uh, so as part of this, we asked Matt to suggest uh, some beer from Michigan. Matt, tell us what you picked out or what you suggested. What I suggested was a, a brewery from Kalamazoo called Bell's. And they are probably most famous to your listeners for uh, two different brews, which we are not going to review here. Uh, one is Oberon, which is sort of this spring kind of, it's a vit, so it's got a lot of citrus going on. That and Tiger Spring Draining are sort of the unofficial beginning of spring here in Michigan. And then uh, my favorite beer, which is an American IPA called Two-Hearted Ale, um, which is named after the Two-Hearted River in the Upper Peninsula. Uh, which is also the name of an Ernest Hemingway short story who spent a lot of time in the Upper Peninsula as a young man. And it also happens to be my favorite beer on earth. It is just perfect and delicious. A side note, uh, Bell's just recently, like within the last couple of weeks, announced that it's being sold to an Australasian distributor. And early reports indicate that they will keep all of the recipes and the production will stay in Kalamazoo and they will keep the name and they will keep all the, and it's largely a distribution thing. So soon, uh, your lovely listeners will be able to get all kinds of Bell stuff all over the country. I, hope. I wonder what the distribution is on that, Matt, because we don't have any problem with Bells down here in Florida. Okay. I've, I've had that stuff. I've had Oberon and Two Hearted Ale multiple times uh, on draft yeah. even. Well, I have to tell you, I drank a lot of Oberon in college because I was in Shakespeare in the Park. And so... <laughs> <laughs> Oberon is obviously a Shakespeare name, and so that was that was what we got for our Shakespeare parties if That's we wanted to be funny. If we wanted to be thematic. <laughs> so I'm going to crack open the first one here, which is yes. um, I have the official hazy IPA, which is from Bell's, and uh, we all got one. Yeah, we did. Matt said Bell's too hard to We said That's we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to make it go shopping. That's fine. Here's what we got. That's fine. Right, let's try it. And that is a good one. Boy, that's an easy drinking beer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So full disclosure, Matt. Yeah. Hazy IPA is not my category of choice. It is very much my dad's favorite category. This is a good day for Barry. <laughs> we have a hazy IPA and a stout. The third one was a Goza, but you didn't get that one. So I will be drinking that alone, but. I couldn't find it. You know what? I'll have a two-hearted while you do that. Oh, wonderful. I happen to really like this beer. It's very easy to drink, very juicy. I'm enjoying it immensely. I'm on board with you, Abigail. I'm a huge IPA fan. I don't really get the New England IPA and the hazy thing. I mean, I don't I don't hate it. I kind of feel like it has become the new thing that everybody's supposed to have. And so, like, I will routinely go places and, like, if they have an IPA on tap, it's a hazy. And it's like, mm. I don't mind that you have one. Where's the other one? Where's the real one? Where's the real one? <laughs> yeah. You know? And I do appreciate this beer. I've had this a number of times. I really like it. I, you know, it's not a thing where I would go, oh, I'm going to grab a 12 pack of that and just keep it in the house and drink that this week. But like, if I go someplace and somebody's got a sixer of it and I have one or two, that's that's awesome. This one's not super juicy, fruity version of a hazy IPA. This is probably somewhere between that and a more traditional, maybe even American pale ale. It's not quite as bitter as a West Coast IPA or the sort right. of traditional IPAs, which by the way, Matt, I like a lot. I am an IPA fan. Abigail's not at all an IPA fan and a hazy IPA fan. Occasionally. <laughs> occasionally 
we'll get a hazy one that she does like, uh, but anything in this category, it kind of splits the bill for us. If we see them, we rarely get a traditional IPA now when we go out, right, Abigail? If we're yeah. reviewing something for the podcast, it's almost always a hazy because there's a better chance you're going to like it. And also that's your, you know, we know you're going to like it. Well, we I like beer. <laughs> it's delicious. <laughs> so while I'm sipping on this delicious beer, I want to find out sort of, so you're involved in a lot of bands now. And it looks yeah. like if I'm looking at the timeline, right, that the first one that, that I know of was the Pantones. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, I had sort of a, uh, a short stint in the mid nineties in a, Abigail will probably appreciate this because it's, it can only happen in a college town. <laughs> I was in an art rock band for like a year and a half or so in the mid nineties, like 94, 95. We did a bunch of original songs, but then we also did like uh we did a Pink Floyd cover. We did a Joy Division cover. We did a Velvet Underground cover. We were 22 and 23 and pretty naive, but we had a lot of fun. And then as you do in a college town, the candle burns real bright for a little while and then everybody scatters. And this will probably lead us to another conversation, Abigail, but my first creative endeavor, even before I could play music, was the theater. Oh, wow. And so uh, I went to, to community college and got a theater degree and, you know, because that's useful. And when I stopped playing in that band called Third Uncle, when I stopped that in 95, I kind of fell back into the theater world for a few years. And then by like the summer of 2000, I had written some songs and I put out a, a solo record under my own name. And then by 2002 or 2003, we were doing stuff as the Pantone. And then that lasted for 10 years. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. If you include my solo record as part of that, because many of those folks were on the record, even though they, it wasn't a band yet. Uh, we put out four records in nine years, I think. Wow, that's incredible. So you put up a Facebook post a while back, Matt. You said something about the Harbor Tones. So were there people in the Pantones who have stuck around, let's say? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for holding that into the other band. <laughs> Very good. The joke we have in the stick rounds is whenever anybody says that phrase, we all have to point and say, he said the thing, he said the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the drummer in the Pantones and the keyboard and guitar player in the Pantones are both in Harbor Coke. Okay. So th including me, three fourths of the Pantones are still together in Harbor Coke. That's very cool. And my drummer in Harbor Code and the Pantones is the drummer for the stick-arounds as well. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. So the Pantone stuff I like is a different stylistically. A little more mellow, I think. Um, yep. A little more, I won't say ethereal. That's probably too strong of a word, but not quite the rock and roll that you get when you hear the stick-arounds and the Harbor Code. That's just my just stalled. Am I, am I on to that, right? No, I think that's a pretty accurate observation. Uh, you know, when we were doing the Pantone stuff, and it sort of gets gradually a little more aggressive by the time you get to the last record. Largely, that was all written again kind of out of that love of like the acoustic folk singer-songwriter thing. And then I also had a big affection for the alt-country movement. So bands like mm -hmm. Wilco and Sunvolt and Uncle Tupelo and the Jayhawks and the Bottle Rockets and bands like that. And so it wasn't quite country, but it wasn't really rock and it wasn't really folk and it kind of, you know, so it was that stuff kind of mixed up with like Iron and Wine. So it was those kinds of influences, you know, and again, it's always for me anyway, in terms of writing songs, it's always been mostly just sort of a way to deliver story. Right. I, I was just curious the way you learn guitar, which was kind of on the fly. Do you think that some of the Pantone stuff was a little more simple or a little easier to play because you were gaining strength as a musician over time? I think there's probably some of that. I think largely what it came from was I spent a long time kind of slowly building a band. 
And so for a long time, I always kind of defaulted to how do we make sure these can be delivered and are interesting if it's just me and a guitar. Ah, got you. To a certain extent, I still do that, but I'm less reliant on it now. And I think before it was, okay, let's write this like a one, four, five folk song, and then we'll judge it up a little bit and it'll be a full band thing. But if this thing falls apart or somebody's sick or somebody else has a thing with their kid, I can go out and play on a Friday night at a coffee shop and I can still basically deliver the song. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool to have that built into the design of the music itself. So you're chugging along as a pantos. At what point do you kind of switch gears on that? Or, or why do you switch gears on that? The the pantones really didn't, there was never really like an end. It was just one of those things where like it just kind of petered out because of people's commitments. So that band for most of its existence was a four piece. It was myself, my drummer, Joel Kuiper, my friend, Jake McCarthy, who played bass, and then Dave Baldwin, who played guitar, keys, and trumpet. Basically, David had his first kid in 2006. At that point, my kids were six and eight. And then shortly after that, the bass player, Jake, his wife was pregnant. And then they decided they were going to move back to Jake's native Maine. So when they left, that kind of was the death knell. But because of everybody having small kids for the last couple of years, we really didn't do much. And then my friend, Jeff Gower, who is sort of my songwriting partner and my doppelganger and the stick arounds called me one day and he said maddie do you think you'd want to be in a power pop band (laughs) (laughs) and i responded by saying where have you been for my entire life that's funny and then i found out that the only other person that he had talked to was a guy who we'd both been friends with for 20 years at the time who is an incredible guitar player and an even sweeter human being. So the three of us went out in search of a rhythm section. And, you know, there have been some kind of ins and outs with bass and and drums, but it's been the three of us for 12 years. And uh, it's just a blast. I I write not quite half the songs in our catalog I've written. We've kind of gotten into a thing where it's a back and forth during live shows. So he'll do one and I'll do one. I think we're good yin, yin and yang for each other in terms of like the way he writes and the way I write. I get to sing a bunch of backup vocals, which is really fun. And uh, it's just a blast. So you sent me the album, The the Ways to Hang On, which you talked about earlier. So I'm looking at the, you know, I went back to Phonofor Records website because I was looking around just like, you know, because I I read things ahead of time so that I can forget them for the podcast. But I was looking at the site. There's so many albums or singles or materials on this album collection from the stick arounds that clearly that's your primary thing. And I'm looking at album covers. I see, I wouldn't call it a parody cover of something called microscopic that looks like the unforgettable fire. You have an album up here called connection. It, the album cover reminds me of something from Sloan. I'm not going to tell you why I know Sloan, but there's an album cover that looks like you stylistically. Yes, that is a great eye, Barry. So as I said, I do all of the design work in the stick arounds and what we decided we were going to do in 2019, and it was probably somewhat idiotic, but we decided we were going to put out a single every month. Oh, wow. So the way that it started was when we did Ways to Hang On, we recorded 16 songs. For lack of a better word, we pretty much finished all the parts on 16. We wanted to make a, like a 10, like a tight 10 track, 30 minute record. So we did that. And then we had these other six songs left over. And I was like, well, we're not going to turn around and put another record out in six months. What if we did digital singles and we took these songs and then we wrote some more and we did a couple covers. And so what we wound up doing was the first half of the year, we did those six new songs. Then we did three covers, one other new song, and then two songs that are on our first record, which is a live record. And we did studio versions of those. And we thought that it would be fun to do essentially a stick arounds cover 
based on another record that we loved. So you will see Radio City by Big Star. You'll see Cheap Trick Lab Budokan. Um, <laughs> uh, Depeche Mode's Music for the Masses is in there. Uh, the Jayhawks. Hollywood Town Hall cover. Yeah. And uh, The Smiths, The Queen is Dead is the last one. I knew I liked you, Matt. And now I like you even better. You know, that is this so is so cool. <laughs> I mean, that's what we do with our episode. Yeah, part. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that, but that totally is what you do with your episodes. That's what we do. It's funny. I, I, I was looking through here. I was like, man, that's pretty cool. So yeah, so a lot of those are singles. Okay, so that's not all albums because it yeah. looks like you guys are about as productive as the Beatles, nineteen sixty-two to seventy. By the looks of uh, no, we're not deciding that in two weeks we need to do some kind of massive show <laughs> and have no material ready to go. That was a really fun project, and it was really fun to do the covers for those. There were times when it was nerve-wracking to get it done before the first of the month. Oh, but... tell me about it. Tell me yeah, about we... it. We managed to get it done. Um, I had I had more than one temper tantrum, but we we managed to we managed to get it done. Dad, I feel like your reaction was a little bit of a pot shot at me. But, well, I'm just well, no, I pick the worst albums all the time. You know, you send me the easy ones, and then I pick things like you know where I have to get paint out. I mean, I'm it's crazy. So obviously, stick arounds is probably your primary project. Um, I would say, I would say right now it feels more equitable than it usually is because we just put a, we just put a Harvard Cut record out. Okay. That band really until recently wasn't even really a, a, a band in the formal sense of things. So that project came about in 2016, 2017. I had some songs that didn't really, for whatever reason, didn't really seem to fit within the stick arounds world. And then of course you've got Jeff is writing more songs than we need from him and I'm writing more songs than we need. And so there's always a surplus. And so I thought, well, why don't I make like a sort of a solo bedroom record? I just, I've got a little bit of gear. I can do this. And then it was like, I'd really like live drums. And so I got a hold of my drummer from the stick rounds and the Pantones and, you know, I had all these demos and I was like, can you just record? These are all done to a click. Can you just record the drums? And so he recorded drums for 22 songs in three days. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then drums were done. Again, it was it was never really going to be like, oh, this is a band. It was like, we're going to piece this together and then I'll put a record out. It just kind of slowly became a thing. And then it was like, you know, the first thing I did was I put out a two song single. And then a couple of years later, we put out a full blown record. And then once we had the record, it was like, well, we should play a couple shows. That's how it starts. <laughs> we did a release show and then we got invited to play this local festival. And so we basically played two shows at the end of 2019 and then the world shut down. Oh, wow. And then it was like, okay, well, so we put that on hold. And then I had a ton of songs that I had written at the end of 19 and then during pandemic. And I was just like, we need to make a record and I want to do it with the people who were in the live band and I want to make it a band thing. So we were able to take four of us in September of 2020. So still no vaccine or anything, mm. but numbers were halfway decent in Michigan at the mm -hmm. time. And we knew we could be outside a lot. And so we went to my family cabin, which is about an hour and a half North of where most of us live. And we spent four days doing two guitars, bass and drums and a scratch vocal. And we recorded 14 songs in a week. Wow. wow. So the idea was all we wanted to make sure we got was bass and drums and anything else could be done later. We got all of that and some more stuff done. And I was even able to do some overdubs the last couple of days. Cool. So that was really great. That all happened at a time where I was going through a bunch of personal turmoil. So about a month before we were supposed to go up north, my dad died very, very suddenly. Oh my oh God. gosh. Yeah. So my dad was 71 and was one of those people where you went, oh, so he's 60, right? Like just really 
really good shape. He and my mom traveled a lot. He, Barry, you'll, you'll appreciate this. He was one of those people who had to walk 10,000 steps every day. <laughs> I appreciate that. I do. And then had to tell you that he'd walked 10,000 steps today. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, that I really appreciate. <laughs> Uh, it's a little bit like if a tree falls in the woods, if you walk 10,000 steps and you don't tell anybody, <laughs> did you really walk 10,000 steps? No, absolutely not. So that was obviously, that was a huge, huge shock. And so I considered pulling the plug on the whole thing. I wasn't going to go. Oh, wow. And my mom and my wife and my kids and my sister and my bandmates were all like, what are you going to do? You're not going to feel any better if you just stay home. But it also wasn't that I thought, okay, I just don't want to be there was, I don't think we're going to do anything good. And I feel like I'm going to waste everybody's time hmm. because I'm not going to be present. Mm -hmm. And it was completely the opposite. I got there. I walked in a couple of my bandmates had been there since the day before and they had gotten a whole bunch of stuff set up and we did the awkward, you know, how you doing? Are you hanging in there? You know, kind of thing, which is always sweet, but like, let's just keep pointing at the elephant in the room kind of thing. Yeah. And then once we started playing, it was like everything melted away for oh, five days. Wow. It was a really remarkable experience and I'm so glad I did it. You know, the, when we get into the album, the songs are very uh, emotionally charged mm -hmm. and sad songs. Not, not that they're played sad musically in most circumstances. Do you think that experience with your father changed your performance on the album at all? Because you have a lot of heavy issues on this album. And those, and those issues were all there before my dad died. So mm -hmm. all those lyrical things were sort of baked into the record before that ever happened. That's kind of always been the way that I write. I use a model that Tom Waits once referred to as beautiful melodies telling me terrible things. Oh, Abigail's eyes just lit up. I loved that. <laughs> I loved that. That's my favorite genre of music. <laughs> Agreed. So yeah, I was able to kind of do that. And I've always, like, I've always kind of trafficked in that, I guess, to some degree. But I tend to think there's no way that you can go through that experience and then a month later go and take your songs and put them on, I was almost going to say tape. Say tape. I was almost going to repeat your mistake. Right? <laughs> I'm just going to say tape. I'm just going to say tape. I'm just going to, old man, I'm going to say tape. Say it. So to go and, and record those and put them on tape, I don't think there's any way that that can't leak into the process at all. My friends are feeling it. They know what I'm going through. They feel terrible for me. They sort of realize that they're insulation from the reality that's out there that I've been dealing with for the last five weeks. And so in many respects, I think we all kind of felt that maybe we were a little more appreciative of the moment to do it as opposed to, oh, let's do this. It'll be fun. It was, we get to do this. And, you know, obviously an experience like that coupled with the pandemic, there was really this sort of like heavy feeling of like, there are no guarantees. Mm -hmm. One of us might not be here tomorrow. So in a way, I think it was a, a more focused session because of that. That's amazing, Matt. It really yeah. Thank is. you for sharing that. Oh, thanks for listening. It is such a heavy album lyrically. It is. Know, brilliantly so. The writing on this is amazing. And you can feel the emotion in the performances. The stories are very direct. The emotion's very direct and very raw in the lyrics of the songs. But I like that thing, that statement you made about it could have been any of us. And living in the moment is an amazing sort of realization. And what a great experience they've had to put this together in that context. Yeah, it feels a little bit like a, like a blessing. It feels like a gift. To have something that's important to me and that I think is beautiful sort of come out of the ashes of that moment, you know, it doesn't temper your grief. It doesn't help. But it, at least this thing is here, right? Yeah. Yes. At least this thing exists. And I'm sure it would have existed before, but I don't think it would have been the same piece of work. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like you channeled that grief into something that you're always going to have. 
right? And now yeah. I'm always going to have, and hopefully yeah. lots of people are going to have. That that's that's an amazing story, Matt. Thanks again for sharing that. We know based on the name of the band Harbor Coat, you're an REM fan. There's clearly tracks on here that make me think about REM, but a lot of the writing was more kind of Springsteen for me in the same vein, Abigail, sort of working class people, their struggles. I found a lot of Springsteen in the lyrics in the sense that it was very concise stories. And mm-hmm. it's funny, you said Donovan earlier. I remember you saying Donovan, and there's one yeah. track on particular in here. I went through my Donovan kind of greatest hits thing to see why am I thinking this sounds like Donovan? I could not pick out a specific track. But Edwardsburg, for some reason, when I listened to Edwardsburg, I kept thinking of Donovan and I don't know why. And so it's so funny that you mentioned Donovan. Again, that was a big thing that I listened to a lot as a kid. Some of those were some of the first songs I learned how to play. I remember figuring out how to play Colors by Donovan, which is just three chords. And I remember being so excited. And you guys have pegged this perfectly. So both of these records, and I didn't think about this sort of actively, But I sort of think looking back now, I think both of these records kind of revolve around this same town and in some cases, maybe the same group of characters. I think there are people who are showing up on both records and there was no intent, but you can sort of look back at it and go, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. The genesis of the first record really was, I really wanted to write, because this was all kind of coming out of uh, the beginning of the Trump era. So there was a lot of talk about economic anxiety and the forgotten masses and the silent majority and this whole thing. And I didn't want to make a record that was political. Right. But I wanted to kind of look at those people. Specifically, a lot of it came from, you know, drives and walks around the town where I live. And it was sort of seeing these people who have been kind of crapped on. They've, in many respects, done what they could or what they were supposed to do. And they're still kind of up against it. And maybe they're living in a place or living in a way where they're not, they're not really living, they're surviving. Largely where this came from was I thought about it from the standpoint of a parent. At the time I I started working on that first record, my oldest daughter had just finished high school and my youngest daughter was a sophomore. And it really kind of came down to this whole idea of how much of what they have and the choices that they've made and the places that they've wound up have anything to do with what my wife and I did with what their extended family and their support system did. And how much of it is just stupid, dumb luck. Mm-hmm. It was very much, and I'm not a religious person, but it very much is a there, but for the grace of God, go I. I think there's a lot of people who are making bad choices, but they're not making bad choices because they don't care. They're right. just making bad choices and they're hopeless and they're lost. The system of capitalism is just beating them down and, and exploiting them and taking advantage of them. And now they feel completely disengaged from the system. And so they're willing to go and they're willing to seek out a cult-like figure. And I don't agree with that and I don't really understand it. But at the same time, I get the pain. Yes. I get the frustration. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wanted to write about those people because I don't think people are writing about them or thinking about them in a way Mm -hmm. that isn't either. uh, I feel like the, the two times that people write about that from an artistic sense, it's either your whole bootstraps story where I'm a better person than you are. So I persevered through this crappy thing or it's pejorative. These people are dumb and they get what they deserve. And yeah. that, and I just, I felt like both of those viewpoints, they were not really very productive. And I didn't really think that they were accurate or intelligent takes. No. There's no nuance yeah. to that, right, man? No, there's, no, no. there's no sense of, so again, no. if you, you're looking at root cause, right? They're angry and frustrated. They may be directing yeah. that anger at the wrong place, but we should figure out why they're angry because they have a right to be angry at the way the system has treated them currently. How we fix that, we can talk about, but I understand the anger. And and you really did. When you said they were characters, are they based on specific people that you know, or did you kind of create those characters in your own mind? 
I would say it's a combination of the two. None of those characters are based specifically on a certain person. I have a little bit of an interesting occupational angle to this, which is that I sell caps and gowns and graduation announcements to high school kids. Oh, wow. So I spend a lot of time in high schools around teenagers. And many of the stories that are being told, especially in the first record, are from the perspective of young people. So I was really interested, again, in looking at it from the standpoint of here I am in my mid 40s and here my kids are in their late teens and kind of looking at it from those two perspectives. So largely it was, I would see a kid or hear a story and then I would take that nugget and I would turn it into a narrative. I'm a firm believer that everything is political. The personal is political. Thank you, Abigail. Personal stories to me are politics. Given that you didn't want to write an explicitly political album, I think you towed that line very well. I mean, to me, these songs feel like stories. You know, they feel like biographies. And of course, there's something political to find in them. You know, when I think of a political song, I think of a very specific, for example, there's a statement about a political policy that they're not happy with. That to me is a political song. What you're talking about with Matt's stuff and a lot of the songs, these are people that are victims of a political system that has not served them well. We're not talking about the politics and the story. We're talking about the aftermath of that in a very personal level. And I think that's a different kind of writing. Well, and that's more convincing, right? I mean, if we were to play these songs for a group of people who were unconvinced of our political views, these stories would be more convincing than just saying, hey, our system is really messed up right now. They need to see it for themselves. They shut down when you try and throw an opinion at them. They need to yeah. come to it their own way. I think that's a really interesting viewpoint, Abigail. And I would, I would tend to agree with you 100%. One of the things I didn't want to do is I didn't want to have like a call to action moment. Mm -hmm. In one respect, I don't pretend to have a solution. I mean, I tend to think of this record, both of these records really, as songs about casualties of capitalism in a way. I think there is often this interpreted intent all the time. Like this corporation did that and they knew they were, no, they were just trying to make money. Yeah. And they're not honorable people and they're not doing things in an honorable way, but it isn't that they had it in for you. It's that they never considered you in the first place. Exactly. Yes. It's not like they tried to undo you. They just used you and they exactly. forgot about you the moment you were gone. As soon as they didn't have to write your name on a check, you don't exist to them. And so for me, it was much more interesting to write from that perspective of we've all arrived at this point. And some of us arrived at a spot where we really got hit with bad luck. And those people feel helpless. And as somebody who suffers with depression and anxiety, I am intimately familiar with the sense of helplessness. I think the other thing too, is that these people have been told that they should just be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And so yeah. when somebody, when a factory closes and leaves and there's nobody there to fill that vacuum to hire you, what bootstraps are we talking about? We've all been told there's a system in place where we can go all work and have a job and after 40 years, get a gold watch and have a decent retirement. That doesn't exist for people anymore, right? No. And so the factory closes and everybody's left in the aftermath of that. And the media and other interests are telling you that you should just be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Remember when we were going to talk about the record that's not about politics? <laughs> yeah, right. How did we get yeah, on exactly. that Exactly. How did we end up on politics? I'm not surprised from two fans of Pete Dominic that we ended up up on this subject. Oh, she says Pete Dominic's name with some degree of scorn. <laughs> no, no scorn. No, no scorn at all. Likes Pete. She likes Pete. I like Pete. And speaking of capitalism, I'm going to uh, rate this Bell's oh, official yeah. hazy IPA before we dive into the album. Yes, I'm almost done with it. This is a very good. I'm going to give this one a 375 for the record. 
it's very smooth. It's very drinkable. I could drink a lot of these in a short span. That's a bad thing and a good thing all wrapped up in the one. But uh, I like that one very much. I also like it very much. It's a 375 for me as well. Matt has no idea what the 375 is about. No, I do. I do. I do. It's it's a scale of five, right? Yeah. Yep. On quarter point increments. Ooh, okay. he must be one of our dozens of fans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say I would be floating around like three and a half with this. I think it's really solid. Like we said at the top, you know, it's not normally a beer style I gravitate toward. I'm more of a straight up pale ale or IPA guy. I wouldn't say it's all I drink, but it's the vast majority of what I drink. This is nice. It's a nice little change of pace. It's very solid. The consistency out of Bell's is really pretty impressive. Very good. Well, it's canon now. You're committed to a 3.5. <laughs> when Larry Bell finds me later and is upset with me, I will uh Boy, if he tracks you down because of this I'll podcast. That's good news for us, I think. <laughs> I'll tell him that you definitely need a membership uh, or a sponsorship, I mean. Are we trying that other one? Or I am going to open my Bell's Expedition Stout. As we head into this expedition of this wonderful record, this is a Russian Imperial Stout. This is a great category for me. I'm a stout fan. I like sweet stouts more than I like dry stouts. This happens to be on the sweet side, and I like this one very, very much. I have to tell you, I am also really enjoying this, and I'm not... I mean, okay, I have a complicated relationship with stouts. So I enjoy a sweet, (laughs) (laughs) I enjoy a sweet stout, but I find that some sweet stouts that are put out nowadays are almost like syrupy, like too sweet. And because they try and put in unique flavors, like I've had a PB&J stout, I've had a French toast stout, and they're almost like sticky sweet. And I'm not a fan. This is really good. It's not too sweet. It is, gosh, I mean, light is obviously not the right word, but it doesn't, it doesn't stick in your mouth. Have you looked at the ABV? No, I'm afraid. Oh, 10.5. Okay. Yeah. So it's a Russian Imperial. It's not so bad. Complex chocolate and dark fruit is what the bottle says you're supposed to get. I get the chocolate. I haven't gotten the fruit yet, but maybe another set. No, I get dark fruit out of that. Almost like a stone fruit thing. I was going to say plum. There's a little. uh, Yeah, I was going to say prune, which is plum. But is there a, is there, this sounds totally douchey. Is there a note of pomegranate in there somewhere? Oh, wow. A note of pomegranate. It is so easy to cross over the line into insufferable beer. Oh, it is. We do it all the time. (laughs) <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Yeah, welcome to the yeah, podcast. Like, listen, if somebody brings you a beer and you go, oh, I like the nose on that. No, yeah. shut up. Okay. It never happens to me. Yeah, well, first of all, you can't smell, so. <laughs> Second of all, <laughs> maybe you will appreciate the story. I play on an adult co-ed kickball team because that's where I'm at in life. And... <laughs> We'll talk about it when we talk about the songs on this album. You anyway, get your steps in, Abigail. <laughs> I am. Our first game this season, which was, you know, months ago at this point, probably October, we went out to a local brewery after the fact, and I ordered a beer, and none of my friends are like beer aficionados like I am. So we sit down, and I take a sip of my beer, and I go, oh, that's really creamy, which I think is a perfectly normal way to describe a beer. And everyone else was like, what the hell is creamy? how can a beer be creamy? Like, what does that even mean? They're so confused. And I was like, oh my God, I'm the beer douche. I'm using words like creamy, but I passed it around the table and every single person was like, you know what? I never would have thought of the word creamy, but now that I'm tasting it, I get it. That's where I thrive, right? I sound like a douche, but I'm correct. (laughs) I know that's a nice way to defend Matt, but I don't taste any pomegranate. It's just a note, Barry. It's just a note. It's just a a frisson. Just a note. (laughs) So, Abigail, 
Yeah. Um, after you did the creamy thing, did you then say, okay, we're going to pass this one around now. Let's talk about mouthfeel. Oh, we have opinions on mouthfeel. No. Uh, Don't get us started. We have a very complicated relationship <laughs> with mouthfeel. But like, if your friends are going, what the hell is creamy? Like, if you go mouthfeel, they're like, going to recoil and go, what are yeah. you talking yeah. about? Well, first of all, the word mouthfeel would get me a red card from my friends. Like, that is not an appropriate <laughs> thing to say. Second of all... <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh so hard. <laughs> like that crossed the line. That's yeah, the that, that crosses the line. I'm going to tell you that I don't typically drink stouts. This is freaking delicious. Okay, this yeah, is, good. I know I've had this before, but it's been years. And I totally echo Abigail's sentiments about the syrupy sweet ones. Yeah. The other thing is this doesn't feel heavy. No, it doesn't. One of the reasons I don't love like the porters and the stouts is it often feels like you're drinking and eating a sandwich. And it's like, oh. You feel bloated after. It's crisp and drinkable and the flavor's great. Like it's not too heavy. Sometimes I feel like the coffee notes and the chocolate notes tend to be too front forward. It sort of veers off into dessert beer territory, which is not yes. my thing. Either give me a hot fudge sundae or just give me another beer. I don't want both. I'd rather this... eat my hot fudge sundae than drink it. <laughs> I will say that I tend to just have another drink for dessert. Like, oh, I could have an old fashioned instead of getting a piece of cake. I'd like to do that, please. And I do both. <laughs> okay. Well, the difference, Barry, is that you run a marathon and I walk back into my house to go, what's on Netflix? Well, then I get to have the cake and the old fashioned and this delicious stout all at the same time. Yeah. This is really delicious. I think it's time to, uh, I want to share some of these beautiful songs with yes. everybody who's listening. So Matt, what we tend to do when we have a guest on is Abigail and I both pick some favorites. We'll play a little clip and then maybe talk a little bit about the production of the song or any little backstory you can give us on the song. So Abigail, mm -hmm. are we going to go three, two, one? Or are we going to go I one, would two, like three? to go three, two, one. Okay. So we'll go three, two, one. What will happen, Matt, sometimes is we match a lot. So that may be an issue in which case I have extras. Abigail, why don't you tell us your third favorite off the album? Okay, so on this album, I was so taken with the songwriting that I did something I don't often do. I picked songs in large part based on lyrics, Wait, what? which is not how I usually function. Matt, I don't know if you have listened to enough of the podcast to know this, but I am in general a lyrics agnostic, <laughs> meaning... Yeah. If it's fun to listen to, and especially for me, fun to sing, because I love to sing along to music. That's my favorite way of sort of engaging with music. So if it's fun to sing along to, I don't really care what the lyrics say. Okay. But in this case, with this album, the lyrics were so well-written and spoke to me so deeply that I have in large part chosen these three favorites based on the lyrics, which is different for me. So that's pretty cool. And my third favorite is Transit Town.
okay. This song makes me very emotional. So my other two favorites are later on the album. And I think the emotional heavy hitters are on the later half of the album. So the fact that this is track two, like is big because <laughs> it's a big emotional heavy hitter for me. Obviously we have talked about this. I live in Gainesville, Florida, which is a college town. I moved here for college. And when I finished college, I stuck around, if you will, not entirely, but in large part because of a man. <laughs> and I own a home here. So I'm pretty tied to Gainesville. And every friend that I've made here has at some point left because it's a college town and you don't stay here for long. And so this song really resonated with me and sort of my feelings. Oh, I'm going to cry my feelings about, I don't feel I'm stuck here. I happen to actually really like Gainesville, but sometimes the feeling that I may have committed to a town a little too early in life. And this isn't where I'm meant to settle down, but I feel that I am pretty tied to this place. I have put down roots, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so the song really got to me. And so it is my third favorite. Wow. It's my second favorite. First of all, I think this is the most Springsteen song on the album with the horn section and the production of it, but also the lyrics about that town. And I picked the section I played, Matt, because there is a piece of lyrical genius in here. The city's just a stepping stone. And so I guess am I. Thank but you. That's amazing, Abigail, because I hadn't considered that a college town is a transit town. It is. I mean, people come for a few years and then they leave and the people left behind have trouble sometimes. That sentiment that clearly resonated so much with Abigail, which means a lot, is pretty much right on for the backstory behind the theme of the song and the lyrical narrative. I, I sort of thought about it from the standpoint of what does it say when you have all these people kind of come in your life and then go out of your life and they're going someplace and you're not both physically and metaphorically, mm -hmm. even if you feel like you've kind of go, I've got a job. Like you said, Abigail, you own a house. You feel like you're a member of the community. You like where you are, mm -hmm. but you see these other people living their lives. And that involves moving on to a new and exciting chapter away from where you are. You don't just lose a friend. You also have this inevitable thing where you compare yourself and where you are to these other people that not only do you miss them, you're jealous of them, you're envious. And so they split and you think they're doing something and I'm staying here. So therefore I'm stagnant, even though that's not true. To me, that was a really, I felt like that was a really powerful thing to write about. This was one of those ones where it happened really fast. I think this song took 20 minutes. Oh, oh wow. wow. I mean, there were probably edits or lyrical changes, or I went, oh, we should change the way that chorus works. But sometimes they're just gifts that come from someplace. And I don't <laughs> know where, I don't yeah. know where, I don't know. I wish I could tune into it more, yeah. but I have to say, Abigail, I'm just, I'm watching you wipe away tears and oh, I'm yeah. really, really touched that this means so much to you. Thank you. First time I listened to the album, this one jumped out at me. I, I knew that I liked it. It moved up over time. You know, I listened to it obviously multiple, multiple times. And I don't focus on the lyrics as much at the beginning. Toward the end, I actually listened one final time with the lyric sheet in front of me. What was cool about your album is the bulk of the lyrics are in plain sight. Like there's not, yes. there's no mystery to the lyrics in the sense that I got every word by sitting with a lyric sheet in front of me, but I got the gist of all the songs not needing to do that with your album. But this one moved up because of the lyrics over time. The story took more resonance on as I listened to it more. So yeah, I really love this song. Thank you very much. Well, that was my number two. So I'm going to go with my number three, Tightrope Wire. Oh, wow. Uh-oh. Getting lectures from my dad about how life is hard. 
While he drinks his afternoons away in his own backyard I roll my eyes in total disregard Turn my back on my old man and hit the boulevard The truth is pretty brutal and the outer's Between the towers on this tightrope wire And everything I touch is like a dust of fire I'm all of 26, I sure am tired There's so much about this song that I like. Musically, it jumped out at me the first time I listened to the album. I really like keyed in on it musically. But I love the story because it covers decades you know, verse by verse. But the issues surrounding the different age groups are totally age appropriate as you move through the song. So the section I played was the kid who's got a dead end job there and he's out back arguing with his dad or his dad's giving him world advice, even though dad hasn't done a great job himself, obviously, right? He's drinking his afternoons away in the backyard. And then the, the second one, the thirties is the bad relationship or the kind of off kilter relationship with the young woman. And then, and then it's just, I'm 46 and I'm tired. I'm just tired at 46. And I just, thought that progression over time was very smartly written. And I'm glad these are about characters because I was doing the math in my head and I was thinking, I hope Matt's not writing about himself <laughs> in that song. I am relatively close to the 46 mark. Yeah, I'm yeah. a little past it, but no, it isn't that that one's not autobiographical in any way at all. Again, I think that's kind of an extension of some of those characters we were talking about earlier. Again, these people who are kind of stuck in a series of bad situations and they don't have great examples, like the kid's dad obviously isn't together. Maybe the mom's not around, I don't know. And yet at the same time, it sort of feels like this guy could easily be the same character, the unreliable narrator of Transit Town, right? Yes. I don't know that it is, I don't know what it isn't, but it could be the same person. It's the same kind of viewpoint. It's you're stacking yourself up against other people. You're trying to figure out, I can't make a living making $9 an hour. This gets back to that whole casualties of capitalism thing we talked about a few minutes ago. Again, it's sort of this circle of you don't have a lot of great examples in your life. You know, maybe they didn't make education a priority. You know, maybe they couldn't afford to go to college. And at a certain point, you're not living, you're just surviving, you're getting by. And I think for a lot of us, um, and it's funny that I'm saying this as we're sitting here at a podcast where we get to try beer, you do these self-medicating escapist things. You get into rocky relationships because you don't want to be alone. You drink because you don't want to feel bad. You decide you don't want to go to work because it's too hard to get out of bed and then you don't have a job or whatever. How much of that is just a series of poor choices and how much of it is just luck and misfortune and some combination of the two? This song kind of generated around that idea of the guy and his dad having an argument in the backyard. You know, it's like the dad going, you got to get your act together. And the dad clearly <laughs> clearly doesn't have his act together. It's easy for somebody to say, get your act together. But yeah. it's very hard in the context of the world we live in right now to get your act together. Like to just tell somebody to get their act together is not good right. enough. If you don't have a lot of hope and you don't have a lot of belief in some of the systems that are supposed to help bring you out of that hopelessness. Like it's hard under the best of circumstances. But if you're lined up with, I'm from a family of people who don't have much in the way of resources. I don't really have access to a way to get out of this town or this community. Sort of the backside of the mirror to that transit town thing that we were talking about a minute ago, Abigail, is there are these other towns where nobody leaves. Nobody new comes and nobody leaves. In a way, it's like this stagnant pool of water. 
And so for me, it was really interesting writing this song to try to kind of look at that from the standpoint of like, here's this community. And it's these people who, again, like they just don't have much and they're really, they're all angry and they're frustrated. I guess the whole, you know, I'm 46, I'm, 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 I'm just tired. That really resonated with me. Like I'm a privileged white middle-class dude and I'm tired. And I love that the tightrope is sort of a metaphor for that day-to-day, one step at a time and any slip up and you're off the, yeah. like, exactly. it's such a smart lyric, man. Thank you. So dad, this is my second favorite. Oh, wow. See how this works, man? <laughs> See how this works? There's so much crossover on these. I love it's it. Bad, it's bad, right? Great. It's bad, no. <laughs> yeah, this is my second favorite. I want one of you to pick your favorite song on the on the record and have the other one go, oh, that, I don't like that one. Yeah, that's my least favorite. I know. <laughs> I don't know that that's ever happened. Usually two out of the three are the same. And then the third is just completely off. Like the third is always a wild card. So we'll see about number one. So Abigail, what what about this struck a chord with you? Well, the first iteration of this character we see is only 26 and he sure is tired. Yeah. And I just turned 27 and God, I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired. I can't imagine doing this for another 60 plus years. And right. the fact that this song, <laughs> I'm going to cry again, Matt, what are you doing to me? Come on, man. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to do this, Abigail. The fact that this song validated that and was like, yeah, like it's tiring out there. It is exhausting. And this character was tired at 26. He was fried at 36. And by the time he gets to 46, he is tired and fried. And I feel like that's the path I'm headed on. I mean, obviously it's a bummer, but like, it's nice to know that I'm not alone in that. This guy was tired at 26. I'm tired at 27. And that's normal. I mean, that's a product of the times we're living in and the society we're living in. And it's not just me. There's nothing wrong with me. (laughs) This song was finished just before the pandemic. Not finished, but I mean, I wrote it just before the pandemic. This was not a pandemic song. It feels as though we've only doubled down on these sentiments in the last 18 months. Yeah. Throughout our conversation, the phrase that has kept popping into my head is you can't make good choices if you don't have good choices. Yes. So you mentioned, Matt, you're a privileged white man, and I appreciate, (laughs) you know, your acknowledgement of that. And I am a privileged white woman and my father's a privileged white man. And we have had choices in our lives that other folks don't even get to have. So it's easy to make good choices when every choice in front of you is a good one. If you don't have any good choices to choose from, it is impossible to make good choices. And I look at it from the standpoint of I've made lots of poor choices but either because of the level of the stakes of the choices I had to make or the people I had in my life to help me clean up the mess after I made a bad one, I have managed to be here relatively unscathed. I own a house because my parents said, you should own a house and we're going to help you do that. This is important. Here's a way for us to help you do this and we'll patch this through. And then in five years, it'll be like, we never helped you. I have two parents with terminal degrees who pushed education hard. And did I work my butt off to get into a good school and to do well at that school? Absolutely. But was it a priority in our family that was ingrained in my brain since I was born that education is the most important thing? Yes. (laughs) And did anybody say to you when you got accepted into your school of choice at 18, Yeah, you're just going to have to find a way to pay for that. No. We can't help you. No. We can't give you money for food. We can't give you money for housing. We can't give you money for books. You're just going to have to get all of it on loans and then rack up $300,000 in debt. 
to kind of tie this back into the record, there's a lot of that rage hidden in those songs. <laughs> like I said, this isn't a political record, but I do agree with your comment earlier, Abigail, that the personal is political. I think anytime you make any creative thing and you put it out in the world, there is a political statement inherently attached. I do want to remind everybody, you're listening to Pops on Hops, where we discuss music and beer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. uh, many of these things that I am feeling, Barry, are a reason why beer is a part of my life. Ooh. Amen. Uh, I'll drink ooh. to that, Matt. That's, that's <laughs> deep. So where were we? Did I do the last? You did, one? and it was okay. yeah, and it was your third favorite and my second favorite. So do you want to? Shall we rate this beer before we move on? Or oh yeah, let's do that. I'm gonna go first. I was so impressed with this and so happy with this that on a stout scale, I'm gonna give this a four and a half. Oh, he's coming in. Wow. I really liked it. Again, it's not a thing I'm going to drink a lot, but if somebody said, hey, let's have a stout, and this was available, I would totally get it. I'm going 4.25. I liked it a lot as well. I'm in the hot seat too. Four and a quarter for me. And I'm going 4.0. Holy cow. Everybody's above a four. Is that rare? It is pretty rare. For a stout, above a four is very rare for me. Agreed. But this is a dang good stout. I know this is not sanctioned, but I'm going to go ahead and open it too hard today because I had one in my fridge. Oh, great. Okay. We understand that. We're good. We're going to have the prairie grass dividing by Bell. Kind of bummed I couldn't find this. I'm excited for it. I can't believe we found it in Florida and you don't have it in Michigan. That fascinates me. Oh, this is from the Leaves of Grass series. So we have a Walt Whitman inspired ale. This is really good. This is a Goza style ale brewed with plum, salt, and coriander. I mentioned coriander earlier. Isn't that funny? I mentioned plum earlier. (laughs) Salt. And salt. Yeah. Salt is in all Gozas. What makes a Goza different from just a normal sour is the addition of salt. Got you. I learned something today. Thank you. You're very welcome. We know this much about beer and we're dangerous. (laughs) So I want to get your first blush on this. You don't have to rate it yet, but I want to hear what you think. First sip. It's very salty. Very salty, which I don't have a problem with. I'm a salt freak. I'm like that creature in Star Trek that has to suck salt out of human beings. I could eat salt all day. Dad, I have a weird reference that you might understand. So do you know those salted dried plums? Yeah, mom's favorite. Mom's favorite. The last time I realized they were in the house, I think I was in middle school and I found them absolutely disgusting. But You could say you hate them because I hate them too. I don't understand the attraction. This beer reminds me of that, but but in a good way. I like this beer. It tastes like salt and it tastes like plums. That's awesome. Anyway, I like this beer because I like salt. Where it's going to lend on the rating, I don't know, but uh, so far, so good. Abigail, if you are a sour fan, if you can find it, Bells does make another beer called the Oarsman. The Oarsman? The Oarsman, which is a, it's basically straight sour. It's really good. I just wanted to point out, this is the second of seven beers celebrating a literary classic and one of our favorites, Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. So I'm intrigued to see what the other six beers would be. I must say I'm a little embarrassed that the Floridians picked this out and I didn't. I didn't know about this. Now I have Oarsman Ale is out of production. Am I reading something? Oh, Uh -oh. I I did not know this. Matt, you've doomed me. <laughs> oh my God. Now, now I have truly sent you on a snipe hunt. <laughs> I think all of the Oarsman category is out of production. The yeah. entire Oarsman catalog has been discontinued. Oh no. Think of it as the Pantones of Bell's Beers. <laughs> Heading back to the music part, I think we're down to your first favorite song on the album. Is that correct? Yes, we are. 
And this favorite I chose, I mean, obviously the lyrics are great, but this song stood out to me from the very first time I listened to this album for a combination of the lyrics and the music. I think it's absolutely wonderful. And that is Things I Should Have Done. First of all, Matt, you sound just like Michael Stipe <laughs> in this song. Oh my God. I'm going to go <laughs> ahead and uh, I'm going to have somebody needlepoint that for me so I can hang it up in my studio. <laughs> Except you can understand the lyrics. You are a more eloquent Michael Stipe. <laughs> oh, this just keeps getting better. But Lord, I mean, thank you. You're um, welcome. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that. Thank you. You're welcome. Dad, I'm glad you chose the clip from the opening because the guitar in the opening, I think is just gorgeous. I mean, beautiful oh. guitar. Obviously the lyrics are so fun. Dad, I thought of you. <laughs> the line got my doctor in disappointment. I circled. So <laughs> yeah, I had a clip because this is like my fifth favorite. Oh, really? Okay. If we need to go that deep. This was in my top three. Oh, wow. But that's the line I circled. That's exactly yeah. the line I responded to was I got my doctorate in disappointment. I heard that line and my first thought was, oh, my dad's going to like that line. <laughs> so Matt doesn't understand that story. So Matt, I'm an MD, right? I got a yeah. medical degree yeah. in 1989. I went and did my okay. pediatric training. And then I have never really practiced like a traditional physician ever since. Okay. I hated medicine probably before I finished medical school. I'm, I'm studying this thing and I'm good at it. It's not that I'm not good at it. It's just, I could see the trend in medicine, even in the eighties, like this is not going to be, this is not going to be a doctor friendly environment going forward, but I got to finish. So, you know, I've spent my whole life trying to figure out how I could use my degree in an alternative way. So when Abigail says I got my doctorate in disappointment, I should have that stitched on a t-shirt because that's exactly <laughs> my life. Seriously. That's awesome. I mean, it's not awesome, but it's great that you relate to it that way. <laughs> it's interesting in the sense that I've always found a way to use my medical degree in an alternative right. way. I make decent money and I'm having a good time. Yeah. And yeah. I'm married to a physician who actually likes it. That helps. And as we discussed earlier, you have clearly instilled in Abigail an impetus to higher learning. And that's, mm -hmm. that's awesome. My um, whole thing was get a degree that you can use for anything and then figure the anything out. I really had this conversation more with my son than I did with my daughter, right? So my son has a business degree, which I steered him into. And I just said, go get a business degree because you can own your own shoe store or you can run a fortune 500 company, but you have to have a degree yeah. to do either of those well. And so I'm not disappointed in my education. I'm disappointed in a different way. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about economy and opportunity and things like that. Yeah. I had amazing opportunities. I landed on my feet 
but ultimately I would have been better served with a different kind of degree. I'm not right. disappointed in the degree, but yeah. I, I spend so much time doing things that I enjoy way more than medicine. I would love to know what drew you to this song, Abigail. At first it was the hook. I mean, the guitar hook was beautiful to me. Also, a lot of my choices for top songs are based on what do I get stuck in my head the most, Okay. <laughs> which is maybe not the best reason to pick a favorite song, but this song, oh my gosh. I mean, this song gets stuck in my head all the time. I love singing it. The guitar is gorgeous. I like that the melody of the things you should have done at the beginning is different from the melody of the things you should have done in the middle of the song. It just, it makes it interesting to sing I said earlier my favorite way of really engaging with music is singing along to it and so if something is fun and interesting to sing and makes me remember that I have to sing things a different way that's how my brain keys into the music that makes sense so this is just like a weird tiny thing but the fact that the melody of the things you should have done in the opening is different from the melody of the things you should have done in the middle of the song just keeps my brain alert a little more that's why I love this song. I think there's an interesting musical trick you used here, Matt, which is you start with the chorus. It's the only time you did it on the album. Yeah, that's true. The only time on the record. And mm-hmm. it's an REM trick. It's also a trick yes. of other artists to start with the chorus first, right? Yeah, you start with she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you exactly. work from there. <laughs> that's not REM. For the fans who don't realize that that was the Beatles, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to point that oh, out that that on. wasn't <laughs> you. Okay. If you don't realize that's the Beatles, you are way too deep in an episode. You should not be listening. Yeah. You've picked the wrong podcast. I will uh, tell you the God's honest truth. I come at the opening line of the song, which is how I started. That was the genesis of the whole thing was I had that line and then went, how do we take this from there? And then it just kind of happened. But anyway, my doctorate in disappointment thing is I am a person for whom higher education didn't take, or I didn't take to it. So I basically finished an associate's degree and then I went to work and I never went back. I don't have a ton of regrets. One of the regrets I have is that I know people who are nowhere near as intelligent as I am, who have a bachelor's degree, and it just makes me feel terrible. So that just means I'm lazy and worthless. And so that was kind of the genesis of the song. It was the things I should have done in this relationship in terms of my educational life. I should have been more disciplined. I should have had more self-care. I should have had more foresight. I think if you're totally wrapped up in the stuff that you screwed up and you're stuck in the past, it's going to be really hard to make a relationship work. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of the, the lens through which I wrote this. And this was another one, Abigail, that happened pretty fast. Yeah, was it? Oh, wow. I had that opening line and I sat down and I was kind of playing around with some guitar parts that I had. Choruses, it basically wrote itself. And then it was like, well, you put that at the beginning and then you write another verse and there's a solo and you do the intro thing. And then it was done. It was like an hour. You said your degree was in theater, right? Yeah, yeah. Super useful. Well, (laughs) my dad just talked about how he never really, I mean, he did for a little bit, but he never really used his degree and he's spent his life finding ways to adapt his degree to the things he actually wants to do. And I can't tell you how much time I have spent not counseling, but speaking to people I did theater with in college about how to put that on your resume, because I think doing theater is the most applicable activity you could ever do to any job, to any job. Absolutely. Anybody who's like, well, can you be a team player? I don't know. Have you ever stage managed a show? (laughs) (laughs) Can you work with a variety of big personalities? Absolutely. Can you handle 11 competing egos? And then one person who's trying to corral all those into a pen. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I can. I can do any one of those 12 jobs and to have. I'll go a step farther. You know, after the uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting, which is a mile from my house, man. And where I went to high school. Oh, my God, Abigail. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And where my brother, my little brother went to high school. He was even closer in the timeline than oh, I was. Oh, God. Yeah. But most of the people who became <sighs> spokespeople as a result of that came out of the theater program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interestingly, the theater program was housed in the building where this took place. Nobody was hurt, but the theater kids were the ones who got on camera and made the statements and pushed that message after the shooting. And it's because they have that presence. So it's actually an amazing degree. My degree's in biology and I have no interest in working in the field of biology. Yeah, she's on a podcast for God's sake. I'm on a podcast, right? So I... (laughs) I would have done better majoring in theater. (laughs) I mean, my theater skills are way more applicable to my current job as essentially a secretary in academia. What do you really want from an employee? You want somebody who's going to show up on time. You want somebody who's going to do what they're supposed to do. But you're always going to hear the phrase, I want somebody who can think on their feet. What is better preparation for thinking on your feet than performing in public with a group of other people who sometimes don't have their act together? Thank you. You want a theater kid. Well, it's like we should give degrees in improv is what you really want. Yeah, exactly. Everyone should be yes anding. That's what they should be doing. <laughs> yes. And now I'm going to reveal my favorite song of the album. Oh, my God. Oh, look at that. Now, Abigail thought that your vocals were very much like Michael Stipe on her favorite. All right. And I think both of us came into this, you know, with the Harbor Coat thing going, ooh. There's a lot to live up to there when you name your band after an R.E.M. song. Absolutely. And then two R.E.M. fanatics come in and say, hey, you want to come on my podcast? <laughs> and then you go, oh, God, they're going to look at this through the lens of people like me. With all that in mind, going into this, my favorite song was the opening track, Always Better. To you pretending by the age of five Maybe in your boyhood bedrooms Where you learn to lie Doctors say the mother How madness is a foul disease Grand illusions finally got you down Screaming to your knees It seems like life was always Yeah, I thought more than any song on the album, this totally sounded like an R.E.M. song. Wow. So I went in going, you know, like Harbor Coat, R.E.M., and this is the first thing I hear. And this song's what sold me on the album, Matt. Like, I put this in, I was like, oh, I'm really going to enjoy this album. Oh, that's awesome. And quite honestly, a lot of the songs don't sound this way. Yeah. Yeah. But... Abigail always talk about the opening track's got to be the mission statement of the album. And I thought this really captured that right out of the gate. I love this song. The section I really wanted to play where I like the lyrics a lot, it's a little bit later, but I wanted that jangly guitar because that's what really made yeah. coming in thinking, oh, I, this is R.A.M. adjacent. But the next verse, you had this great line where you said, a clump of spiritual advisors couldn't help the cause. You can't wrap dismembered psyches Ooh. in a roll of gauze. 
talking about my medical degree that I never use anymore. I love <laughs> that line. It's so precise. You know, it's such a precise line. It's great. It's a great line. Thank you. This is kind of a weird one. And I haven't really talked about this at all in the promo after the record got released, but this is one of two songs on the record that were written a fair number of years ago. Oh, wow. Edwardsburg is the other one. Edwardsburg was really the last Pantone song. Oh, wow. And that was written in like 2012 with the intent of sort of being part of whatever the next Pantone's record was going to be. And we kind of resurrected it for this. And at first I thought, but well, that's not going to work. And it really did. And I thought it fit really well on the record. So we kept it. But this one came from a really weird project. And this is going to lead you and your listeners down a Google rabbit hole. So and I'm going to forget this guy's last name, but there is a dude who was living in Detroit who was an informant for the FBI who had connections to some organized crime and to some drug rings. And he had crafted a persona where he was part of a lineage of Austrian royalty. His fake name was Joseph von Habsburg. And it was never real. And it was all made up. Hmm. He was a dealer. And he had an agent with whom he informed. And eventually he got into so much trouble for back child support and bouncing checks and all kinds of other stuff that eventually it caught up with him. His informancy couldn't keep him out of prison. So the deal is, this was like nine or 10 years ago, probably. And I had a group of friends, some of whom were in the Pantones and some of whom were in other projects. And we heard this crazy story and we were like, let's all write songs about this. And then the next time we all go up to the cabin together, we'll play them. And so... I wrote like five songs around this idea and some other friends wrote like three or four. And so we had like 12 songs. And at one point we were going to make a record and then nothing ever happened. And then I just had this song. I had this song sitting around and it kind of works on this record. It's funny that you say that it's the mission statement of the record because my concern was exactly that. Huh? Like this is not part of this other collection of the 11 other songs. How about that? And yet it works perfectly within the guise of what is going to happen because it's about that idea of self-sabotage and not looking at things objectively and having grand illusions about stuff. Hmm. It also ties into the, you know, this is what happens when you feel like you don't have a lot of options. It just kept coming back going, why are you not starting the record with this song? How about that? At first I was like, we're going to record this and then we're not going to put it on the record. We'll do something else with it. It just kept bouncing back up. And it was huh? like, this is the song that's got to be on the record. And then sooner or later it was like, this is the first song on the record. You can't start the record with something else. That is so interesting. Oh my gosh. So of course I see the name Harbor Coat and I hear this. My gut reaction is they're all going to sound this way, right? Were you disappointed when they didn't? No, 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 not at all. Because the next one, which is my second favorite song, comes out of the yeah. gate like a Springsteen song. What ended up playing through the whole album was the theme of the lyrics and whether you came at it musically in a different way or not became fun. I have a different one that yeah. I think sounds the most REM. Oh, you do? Which is? I do, which is track three, Go to Sleep. We just run in circles around a circle in my brain. Forward in silence, oh, now every night's the same. It was that intro for me. That intro sounded so much like R.E.M. to me. Yeah, I got a little of that, but the slide guitar made me think of some other groups. We joke that that's our CCR number. 
CCR. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Listen, there's not a song on here I don't like. No, agreed. Oh, that's wonderful. If you were going to hold me on a least favorite, I'd say the last one only because it makes me so, so sad. When you write a song about a war wife who wishes her husband hadn't come home, yeah. that's... Uh... It's really a powerful song. With a shattered leg, you can't work much at all. Putters round the house most every day And the VA helps with housing And sometimes brings some food Tobacco and his books fill up his days and His legs they shake from cold even in summer Shivers, they've been locked there since by stone. The whiskey starts appearing after lunchtime. Perhaps he never made it home. Would you like to hear the story about how Never Made It Home was recorded? Yes. I think it is a pretty good one. I told you that we recorded this at my family cabin. Originally, it was going to just be me. There was going to be no piano. There was going to be nothing else. Oh, wow. Long story short, we decided that the way to do this was we set up two mics on the lawn between the cabin and the lake. I had one mic for my vocal and one mic for my guitar and put an old kitchen chair out there. And I recorded that version that you hear is the only version of that song I recorded. Oh, wow. And while I was recording it, everybody else was in the house. And at the moment that I started playing, my friend Jeff from the Stick Arounds showed up to just kind of hang out for the weekend. We were kind of getting toward the end of it. And we were just going to have some fun. And he walked in. And the first thing he said was he turned to our buddy Ian, who's my bass player in both bands. And he turned to Ian. And what he said was he was like, this is great. When did you do this? Matt's voice sounds so good. And Ian turned to him and said, Jeff, this is happening right now. Oh my gosh. And I got really self-conscious because I thought I can do this better. And I went back like several times and tried to do it better. And I, I couldn't, I just couldn't. Nothing else had the same feel. Your emotion is really imbued in the vocals in that one. It, I mean, it's so obvious how emotional that song is from your vocals. So it worked. I'm going to play one more clip and then we'll wrap it up. But you mentioned Edwardsburg, which uh, yeah, I thought Edwardsburg was really a beautiful, pretty song. And this was the one I put it on and I kept it going. I said, Donovan, there's, I, it's making me think of Donovan. That's awesome. So I'm going to play a little clip of Edwardsburg. Up strains a carnival dream. Walking down egg crates at the old in between. Piled into a broken down airstream. Fears covered up in whiskey and morphine. Yeah, 
There's a real 60s vibe to that that I really, really liked. I was sorting through my catalog in my head, and the only one, the one that seemed the most relevant was Donovan for some reason. But I really think this is a great song. And I played that section because I liked the instrumentation. But that line piled into a broken down Airstream made me think of the other Harbor Code album, right? Which was all about trailer park stuff. Yeah. This one gets stuck in my head a lot too. Well, and I like that thing about I'm over here having a really rough life and I'm looking back on that past town where I just missed the simple things like the county fair is really, right. it's a great lyric, you know, about looking backwards. It's something that- It's that you- you didn't appreciate that idyllic moment that you had. I sort of think of this song as an ode to innocence. There is a point at which we reach an adulthood where we stop believing that anything is possible. And I think what Edwardsburg signifies, whether it's a physical place or not, is a place where you just simply have more belief. You just have more faith in humanity, in the ability of good luck and good fortune. I don't know that this song is about anything specific. The the moment that sparked it for me was I mentioned that I sell caps and gowns to high school kids. And so I drive a lot. And I was in this section in southwestern Michigan. And there is a little town called Edwardsburg. And I just left a school that I worked with. It's a little rural school. And that little rural school happens to be a really interesting anomaly in that part of the world because it was one of the last American stops on the Underground Railroad. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And I was driving sort of between there and where Edwardsburg is. And uh, I literally went by an old roadside motel called the old in between. Uh, So that sparked the thing. And I went, that's really good. And so I pulled over and I like wrote it down. And then I went, I'm going to deal with that later. And again, this was like 10 years ago. And then this was at a time where my grandfather was particularly sick. And it wasn't too long after that, that he died. But one of the stories that he told us a lot was he went to Fort Dix in New Jersey in 1945. He was just about to ship out when VE Day happened. Like he celebrated VE Day at the end of his basic training. And then he went to Europe and he was there on the Marshall Plan for a year. And when he got home, he decided that he and a buddy were going to get in a car and they were just going to drive around out west. And so it was this combination of this innocence of coming right back from the war and driving all over. So that's where the whole like, like, I don't think they went to Alabama and picked cotton, but like, that's where that section comes from. But then there's also this idea of we reach a point where we don't believe we can just get in a van and drive around America. So for me, it's like this, like a Twain story. It's like my granddad's story. It's like me looking back at the town that I grew up in and just figuring out where does that break happen? Where do we stop buying into the dream that we can do what we want? I'm staring right now at Abigail because I'm going, okay, it probably is before 27, but I don't know. It's before 27, don't worry. (laughs) She's she's crying at Transit Town, so I'm assuming that we've passed that threshold. But that's only in her mind, Matt. Right. So, you know, we were laughing about this song earlier where the poor guy's 46 and burned out, and I'm going, but he's only 46. (laughs) Right, right. And there's part of that that is intentional. You're not going to get less tired of 56, yo. No. That's what I mean when I say that, like, to me, this song is an ode to innocence. It is written almost exclusively with this idea that we don't realize the moment at which we stop being a kid. It has nothing to do with age. It has nothing to do with position or money or where we are in life. Suddenly we have this tiny little loss of belief. Yeah. And I would say that's when you actually lose your freedom. Sure. Right. We're having this great debate in the country about freedom. Yeah. Freedom. You're taking away my freedoms. Yeah. I would say that when you cross that mental state where I can't just drop everything I'm doing in backpack in Europe is when I've actually lost my freedom, right? Yeah. My 21-year-old, she's kind of stuck. She graduated from high school early. She didn't know what she wanted to do. So she went to work for me for a while. And then pandemic happened. And now it's like, 
I don't have to have a job because I can eat. I have a place to live and I don't want to make her miserable. And she doesn't know what she wants to do. So school feels impossible. And so she feels stuck. And what I keep telling her is I'm like, go get a job. Your sister has a job. And then if you got to quit your jobs, just go, I'm going to go spend six weeks in Europe because you can't do that when you're 35. Yeah. You just can't. And I'm like, you should just go do it now. Do it three summers in a row. You have my blessing. Mm-hmm. Do it before you turn into the jaded transit town crying person that is Abigail at 27. Exactly. It's- Introduce her to me as a cautionary tale. I will. All right. Yeah. <laughs> at the risk of being a lush, I'm going to get one more too hearted. Well, Abigail, why don't we rate this beer while Matt's getting his own? That sounds one. like a good idea. So I like this one a lot. Can I get the name again so I can try to find it? Yeah, it's called the Prairie Grass Dividing. Okay. It's got a number two on it for some reason. I don't know what that's, that's about. Because Even because it's second in the Leaves of Grass series, Dad. Oh, I'm giving this one a four if we're taking notes, but I like yeah. this one very, very much. I do too. I'm going to give it a four as well. It is pretty much a picture perfect ghost. It's salty. It's fruity. It's sour. It's delicious. So it is the category. And that has been consistent today. We've had three beers that are dang good representations of the category they belong to. And I think as the the Michigander who unapologetically suggested Bell's Brewery, this is what I appreciate is that they are pretty true to the thing and they tend to do it really well. We were talking about the hazy and the stout. I gladly drink those two beers and those are not beers that I normally gravitate to. That's an endorsement. It is for sure. You guys made me feel so welcome today and I it, it oh. means so much to me. Thank you. Thank you. I oh mean, my God, this is so much fun. This truly has been so much fun. Of all the things we've done and I love the album swaps and I love going to the breweries. The things that have been the most fun for me so far have been being able to talk to artists about their process, about their music, about the things that are important to them. I'm so happy that you jumped on here and did this. I'm so happy that you're willing to come back. You know, we'll put you on speed dial and we'll have you back. Oh my God. Anytime. We'll make the stick arounds thing happen down the road. And oh, that'd be uh, great. And I made Abigail cry and it was just beautiful. Oh, it was, twice. It was <laughs> oh man. You guys are awesome. <laughs> You're awesome. Well, Matt, as we wrap this up, I want to ask if there's any song off of the new album that you would like to share in its entirety. I'm happy to play one at the end of the show. Yeah, I'm going to have you play the title track. Good choice. Joy's Elusive. Yeah. So I'll just give a little primer for our listeners. The opening line is, we picked you up in Traverse City, scars across your arms. And um, for a very long time, there was a mental hospital. It was a state mental hospital in Traverse City. And I went there as a kid. And then again, as a teen, before it was gentrified and turned into like a shopping mall with restaurants and stuff. It was a thing where there were a series of buildings and houses where there were these porches with chain link fence on them, where people were kept against their will because they had emotional difficulties. And this story probably takes place in the 60s. And it's the story of a sibling, an older sibling and a significant other. And they they drive up to Traverse City to pick up the younger brother after a suicide attempt and a, a stay at the hospital. And it's about the reconnection of those people and trying to figure out how do we pick up the pieces and move on from here. My folks lived in Northern Michigan, not too far from Traverse City for a decade. And so I got to drive around a lot in that part of the world. And I think some of that built into that, but some of it was just the experience of having been to that place while it wasn't an active hospital anymore, but it wasn't another thing. Again, feeling like, boy, as somebody who is depressed and anxious and a little off, I'm not that far away from winding up in a place like that if I had lived 75 years ago. I think it all just kind of coalesced into a, a, a thing. 
you know, where it turned into a narrative about how do we overcome a moment like that where we're ready to give up? Yeah, it's a really powerful song. Mm-hmm. It's a slower tempo one. I think one of the reasons we probably, you know, Abigail and I tend to go for the quicker tempo song. So I, like, oh, me too, Barry. But uh, there's a reason that the uh, album is titled after the song because it's mm-hmm. a really powerful, powerful Thank song. You. you know, and I was wondering as I was reading it again, you said these people are characters. I kept reading these things going, is this somebody that you know personally? Or thankfully, no. But to your credit, you say thankfully, no. But I could totally believe you if you looked at me and said, yeah, this is my cousin so and so because it's that mm-hmm. real to me. When you hear mm-hmm. this song thank you so we'll share Thanks. that at the end for everybody to get to hear one track in its entirety again the album from harbor co is called joy is elusive and all of these things are available on spotify but if you really 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 want to do everybody in music a favor you'll go to phone of four records and you actually buy the disc even just spend the ten dollars for the digital record on Bandcamp. yeah you would be amazed what a five or ten dollar purchase can do for a band at our level that might be the difference between believing you're doing the right thing or not on a given tuesday afternoon oh wow and i encourage everybody to go and buy some real music for some real artists and uh in this regard, it's Phonophore Records. We'll have it obviously linked in the show notes. And again, Matt, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you jumping on here and doing this. Mm-hmm. Great conversation. Abigail, this has been a treat. The fact that you put up with two old dudes talking for five hours is <laughs> remarkable. I love this. This gives me great joy. And that's good to hear because as we know, joy is elusive. Joy is elusive. It is elusive. That's how you end the episode right there, Barry. One of the few things that gives me joy is this podcast. So let's keep it going. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, that makes me happy or sad. I can't tell. Oh, a little bit of both, Dad. No, you should be happy. You should be happy, Barry. I'm mostly happy, but you know. You want me to feel a little more joy, I guess. I do. I want you to feel a little more joy. Let's not make it so elusive. We all want our kids to feel more joy. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. This is very you. welcome. Well, that is the episode. You can find us on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at Pops on Hops Pod, or you can email us at popsonhopspod at gmail.com. Wherever you're listening to this, there should be a link in the show notes to leave us a voice message if that's something that interests you. And as always, check out our fantastic website, popsonhopspod.com, especially if you want to submit an album to our virtual jukebox. And on behalf of Hops, And Pops. And Matt Carlson. We'll see you next time. Bye. And now, please enjoy the title track of Harbor Coat's latest album, Joy is Elusive, in its entirety. Picked you up in Traverse City, scars across your arms. Drove along the country road, you stared out at the farms Asked you twice if you were hungry, you simply shook your head We inquired if you were better, this was all you said Joy's elusive, joy's elusive Stopped to grab a picnic lunch 
sad stand Meal remained untouched As you clawed in your armband Thought I saw you smirking when the sun had hit your eyes Asked you what your plans were This was your mother's house came out to say hi took you in her arms and you both began to cry standing silent in the driveway no one said a word children playing There it is, my friends, my conversation with Barry and Abigail Hummel of the Pops on Hops crew. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you so much to them for letting me share that with you. I really hope you'll go over and listen to their show. They have some, they just do great work. I love the two of them as people so much, and their show is so much fun. Uh, in fact, it's, it's even inspired my own daughter to be willing to talk to me about music on my own pod when I shared with her that I really loved these conversations. And so I'm really hoping that soon Madeline and I are going to sit down and talk about her favorite music of 2023. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, please make sure you're going over to the blog and paying attention to the stuff that I am publishing every single day, seven days a week, 365 days a year here at What Am I Making? Make sure you are letting me know what you think of the Steven Spielberg Bracket Challenge. Give me some ideas for the radio shows. Let me know uh, when I put up those uh, articles that you chime in and let me know what your favorite songs are. Make sure you're communicating. Can you help me get to 500 free and 50 paid subscribers? It's a lot. I'm asking a lot. But I want you to have fun, and I want this to be a space where you can have a voice and a community and a group of people. And if you'd help me make that flourish, I sure would appreciate it. I wish you all the best for a set of happy holidays, my friends. I hope you're with people who care about you. I care about you. I'm glad you're here, and I appreciate all your support. I'll see you next time. Cheers. Maddie C. Utah nonsense from Medicine and his ADHD.